Um, it's a great privilege to have Annie Cattrall. Uh, is that the right one? say Cattrall, but Cattrall. Yeah. Annie Cattrall um, um, to come and talk. Now, what has Annie and an independent artist to do with obesity? Uh, that will be the first question. Um, I'll get into that uh, uh, very presently. But first of all, um, Annie um, has. Uh, um, a distinguished career behind her, a more distinguished career in front of her, I'm absolutely certain. Um, she's um, uh, worked on a range of uh, um, uh, commissions that have involved collaborations with scientists. Uh, she has a uh, commission at the Hammersmith Hospital, for example, uh, which is uh, uh, supported by uh, GlaxoSmithKline Beecham. Um, she has a commission in the uh, biochemistry, new biochemistry building here um, at Oxford. Um, Commissioned by the Biochemistry Department. We have Jonathan Hodgkin here, who is a Professor of Genetics in the Biochemistry Department and responsible for changing thinking about how new buildings are architected, I think, in Oxford, where art starts to become incorporated in, in, uh, in ideas of design. Um, she's research fellow at Newmark at the University here. Um, she has been artist in residence at the Royal Institution um, in London. Um, she has a Royal Institution Commission brought from within previously at the Paraday Museum at the Royal Institution. I'm going on and on. Um, she has been at the British School in Rome, um, Royal College of Art, um, the or hybrid, uh, the Moving Image Centre in Auckland, New Zealand. She's had something, um, how many things, in Tokyo at uh, the Mori Museum, which is big pickies indeed. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I'm going to show a piece. Of course, of course. It's, of course. it's a massive show of, yeah. of work. So um, and then, yes, Annie shows alongside Leonardo da Vinci and David Hurst in this, this particular Tokyo show. So. They're built on, on the headline, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're here now, Annie. And uh, to, by way of introduction, what are the commonalities? First of all, um, we deal with obesity in anthropology, and the first thing about obesity is it's a complex system. This is a slide of the British obesity system, so it's complex. That's all we need to know at the moment. Um, and the bottom line, really, from um, one of the presentations from this, uh, uh, from the uh, Foresight Think Tank, was that if you pull one piece of the obesity system, try to change one thing, something else changes. Therefore, we need to squeeze the whole thing. Now, in obesity and body embodiment and so on, there are all kinds of metaphors that are, that, that are used. Um, there are internal ones of internal body fatness, there's ones forms of eating, of metabolism, uh, but there are also environmental ones and larger ones. And I think Annie is our interface in this respect because she's interested in, in complexity, how things um, that are internal and less evident and less experiential can be interpreted through um, scientific uh, 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 quantitative methods and that I believe is one of the reasons why you like working with good scientists. So from there, if you can carry on and tell us how your work links with, with what we do. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, what I hoped today was just to um, give you a rather bombard you a lot with images, I'm afraid, as, as my want. Um, so please forgive me if you're overloaded by any visuals. Um, it feels like that they speak, sort of, uh, hopefully, more clearly than what we can do in the time. Um, I was in conversation with Stanley earlier on, saying that 
one of the one aspect of, of my approach, I suppose, is that in a way the work that I've been making over the last few years in particular has gone from inside the body right out to kind of um, the top of clouds, for example, and we were discussing what, what the thread was. And for me, in a way, there's absolutely no difference in terms of my approach. It's all about a kind of re-representation of reality and allowing you to see something perhaps in a more empirical way or perhaps in a way that allows you to compare in a three-dimensional snap snapshot something that is common and often very sort of almost prosaic. And I'm kind of interested in that <clears throat> relationship to what is ordinary and what becomes kind of, as it were, extraordinary as a result of a re-evaluation of it. And maybe gives it, hopefully, a kind of new understanding of whatever that is. Um, so I'm going to rattle through the slides and um, please feel free to ask questions if I'm not making myself clear um, or there's something missing. I've also got quite a lot of slides about um, how things are made, not because I want to kind of talk about the technicalities, but I think the process in this instance, which is what I feel in the way um, this project in <clears throat> here might uh, generate is, is work is a, as a result of that project. And I can come into a situation and anticipate what I might do, but it's actually through that process of being there and being sort of immersed in a situation, whether it's scientific, whether it's the Royal Institution, whether it's kind of flying in a cloud or whatever, that gives another kind of perspective on something that I perhaps have an interest or a hunch, talking to specialists. So, um, I did a residency at the Royal Institution in 2002, Leverhulme sponsored it. It meant I was um, there so for a year part-time. I had a studio there, and I think what was really good about this kind of total immersion was being there. The scientists there, most of them are solid-state chemists, and uh, we do research there. Traditionally, it's been, <coughs> you know, the director has been a person who's um, been head of research there, but in that instance it wasn't. Susan Greenfield's head of uh, the director and um, was a different director of the Science Research Centre. Um, so it's kind of interesting to be behind the scenes and see the kind of mechanics of how science can be um, revealed through mechanisms, through computer information, so forth. And so it was that kind of the components that really interested me. So I spent a lot of time hanging out with the technical staff as well as the science uh, scientists discussing things. This is kind of what I like about this image is the Faraday with the microphone and the molecules and all the sort of things that are there in order to try and describe things. So I watched a lot of the children's lectures as well which um, were done by a, a scientist called Bryson Gore and um, this is called the, the Blue Devil. This is a bubble raft. So just showing very, you know, pheno scientific phenomena in a very prosaic kind of way, but in a way for me, looking at it is also incredibly poetic. That you could think of sort of fairy liquid bubbles as being this extraordinary thing, and that's called why the sky is blue. So this kind of very analog way of, of looking at the world in the sense that um, they had a lot of apparatus downstairs, which was the kind of this is, for example, the sunshine recorder, which showed. Uh, how sunshine was recorded in various parts. Obviously, it's different now with the kind of technology that's available. But I really find that interesting that you could have a, the sunlight could be kind of harnessed and then <clears throat> burn a line along a bit of treated paper so it doesn't completely ignite, and it would show the intensity and the longevity of the sun on a particular day. 
So it's about that kind of behaviour of the sun being revealed and mapped somehow, um, and that being the trace of something which we all experience, obviously, when there's sunshine, not just sunlight, sunshine. And so, and also sort of thinking about very simple things like uh, <clears throat> wind recording. So I made a piece where I transcribed the sunshine data and later cut it into steel and suspended it. So it's kind of like a visual diary of sunlight. And the arc relates to the way the paper is fit, fitted in behind the, the actual sphere of glass, which magnifies it. So it's like that. That was a day there wasn't much sunshine, but there was obviously sunlight. And it was interesting because when people were looking at it, although it was just re-represented sort of scientific data in a very particular way, there was, because it was actually exhibited in the area where the sunshine was recorded, people remembered, I put the dates on the back of the sheets, and uh, one woman, there was a couple of sheets which had no sunshine, it was in the northeast of England, and um, she had apparently got seasonal defective disorder, and she was quite upset by looking at that particular sheet because she remembered it. So it was like a kind of visual diary. So that's it. And I quite like the fact that although I've kind of taken all this data and I've, I've, I've you know, sort of put it through a process, I haven't really kind of touched it. I've just kind of put it there. And I think that, that increasingly is quite an important part of the way I like to work. I don't like to kind of embed too much of myself in it. <clears throat> Talking to a fantastic meteorologist who used to try and um, predict the weather in the 60s for the BBC. <coughs> He produced this apparatus which went outside of a plane and uh, the foil strips and they took it through clouds and they embedded themselves in the foil. So I started to try and recreate what it would be like to be inside a cloud and made these various pieces which are um, photographs. And then I decided it wasn't very satisfactory to have a flat plane. I like thinking three dimensionally, I like bringing things from um, this process of recording back into reality so you can look at it again, re-representing it as it were. And um, so I started to use this technology which is basically subsurface etching into glass. So I made a piece which is the 12 months of average um, cloud formations in and around London which is showing that the V&A is going around England at the moment. And um, it <clears throat> starts off in January, goes through to December and they're blocks of very heavy 25 kilo chunks of glass. So they're kind of optical glass like you'd use in a, in a microscope uh, lens. And I wanted it very particularly just to sort of, obviously they're scaled down enormously, but um, at the same time the proportions of the blocks, which are about 40 centimetres high, um, is about the same equivalent to the um, 40,000 feet above the Earth, Earth's crust to clouds inhabit. So I quite like that kind of relationship to the fog being very low, obviously, clinging to the ground, and then you get up higher and different kinds of types of clouds. So looking down through it, it compressed the whole year, which was another aspect of it, which is quite interesting. So there they are. They're like core sections into the ground, but up into the sky. Another scientific kind of approach to how analysing the world, but kind of, you know, sort of like that. And I think, you know, what I also quite like is, is what this brings to the viewer. Uh, not as I always hear, but I, I often get comments, and now with the World Wide Web and everything, I get emails. And you get some very interesting interpretations or responses. And I particularly wanted them to be cut so you didn't get it centre frame. So it was just like, <clears throat> that was a particular point. You didn't have to have the whole cloud. That was very abrupt at the side, which I think in a way is, is 
you know, allows you to kind of imagine the rest. You paint it in your city, you sort of imagine it, yeah. That's fault at the bottom. So it's done digitally. I scanned materials which resembled clouds and, uh, and then we put it in. So it's quite technological in that respect. And the glass comes from China and uh, it's the best quality and the most economic. And then <clears throat> it's etched in Paris, outside of Paris. So you can see those top ones are very icy. So they're kind of the way that the, the, the um, water behaves at different temperatures, which really interests me. And it actually had a kind of bearing to some extent on what I did for the biochemistry department, that idea of heat. So there we are. <clears throat> so re bringing, as well as showing the, the uh, aperture piece, which is the sunshine recordings on the right, I showed a piece in this exhibition which is called Currents, and I modelled the sea. Um, I tried to try and find a way that it was scientifically possible to do that, but lasers on the surface of the sea doesn't work. And Somebody said, did you pour plaster on the sea? And obviously, it's, you can see why somebody might say that, but it would just sink. So I had, to, I had to kind of do it from my own observations. So I spent a lot of time, which I thought, again, was a bit like the scientific observations in kind of Victorian times, which I quite liked, that I was out on a pier in the South End looking at the sea, imagining myself to be somebody who is, um, you know, kind of observing in that way, and uh, modelled it. Each bit's different at 64 sections, and... Um, and it's vacuum formed, plaster, and then vacuum formed. So it's like, it very specifically, does not have a kind of focal point. The point is, is that it's like the <coughs> clouds and, and future pieces, it's cut. It's just an, anal an analysis of a particular moment in time. Um, a very ordinary moment in time in terms of the sea. So it's sometimes on the floor, like when I showed it in Germany, and there it is from the side. I very want, I carefully wanted the sides to be shown, so I wasn't trying to pretend that it was, you know, moving. It was just um, something that was in a frozen moment in time. Behave, it reacted very much to light, which is quite interesting. So it almost had a kind of life of its own. And one of the things which really interested me, it sort of metaphorically, I suppose, is the relationship of the skin of the surface of the sea to the body and those kind of interfaces when <clears throat> something reacts to what's above it and what's below it. So I, uh, you know, the reason why the water moves as it does is because of the wind and the undercurrents. It doesn't just move like that of its own accord. And in a way I was kind of thinking at a certain kind of level that skin's a bit like that or we're a bit like that. Obviously we don't move like that, but there's a kind of equivalent there. <clears throat> And so going into the work which is more directly to do with the body, I started to work with glass, which is scientific glass, stuff that in the past, I don't know if it still goes on, there's in a few places, Pyrex glass. And I quite like the idea of making the organ, organ of air out of your breath, so it's blown and fused and so forth, and it's made out of borosilicate glass. And just thinking about um, it in relationship to... Um, access into the body, obviously we're breathing here and it becomes part of us and all of a sudden, you know, it, create, it affects our body, the air we're breathing just now. So by isolating that and kind of fragmenting it and just re-representing it and back into a gallery situation or wherever, um, it perhaps allows you to consider more sort of things which 
I suppose in this instance would be as much to do with mortality as it would be to do with boundaries between what's inside and outside of the body and how this stuff can become part of us, the oxygen. And there's also other things that are going on in the work, but from the point of view of, of, of it in relationship to an anatomical concept. So there is the shadow also, I was quite interested in when I presented it, or positioned it in the gallery, was, was visually stronger than the real thing. So um, things in reality have shadows, <laughs> as it were. You know, we need a shadow. You know? And it relates to a kind of light source as well. I made an attempt at a nervous system, which I'm remaking. This is a very preliminary nervous system, which was the whole point of it was it was on the floor and it was fragile and so forth. And one of the things about the nervous system, I suppose, is that <clears throat> it's the way that we experience the world through our senses and nerves and so forth. So to expose it kind of makes it even more raw. And specifically today, <laughs> to do with the, this is called process. So I made this piece which is sort of, in a way, sort of showing that whole thing that we've got this kind of cavity running through us. And, um, you know, it's to do with absorption and so forth. It's not absolutely anatomically correct, but the whole idea that, you know, from top to bottom is, is a kind of channel. So part of what I do, um, which I sort of mentioned at the beginning, is going to places, seeing things, experiencing things. And when I was in Rome, I went up to Florence. I recommend if people haven't been there, it's a great museum, Specula. And it goes from sort of corals right through to uh, fish and polar bears and goodness knows what, right through to kind of <coughs> anatomical waxes. These are the more theatrical ones. But I think this one is um, perhaps about syphilis or something like that. Um, but there's Andrew Carney, who were there together, who's um, one of the people who's involved with this project as well. And, um, you know, I was kind of looking at the anatomy of things and how they're represented in the past, both in terms of models in science and also in terms of art, and whether or not you can distinguish the two in certain instances. I mean, you can in certain instances. And that's what I find very interesting in the Science Museum is the models. It's almost like the bare bones of the concept made into something three-dimensional and physically there. And I've always found those kind of models, molecular models, absolutely fantastic. <clears throat> so um, I started to look inside the heart, and my heart, in fact. And uh, I got a, corro a corrosion cast, which is, I think, for those who don't know, it's when they pump uh, silicon or, in the past, other kind of, um, kind of mixtures into the cavities in the body, and then the acid wave it's a cadaver, of course. And uh, this is actually a pig's heart, it's as close as you can get to a human heart. But I was really interested in the, the bit on the left, which um, is not that easy to see in this slide, but it shows the kind of the way that the heart has, um, well, it shows that, except without all the heart strings, as it were, but it shows that movement of the pumping made visible in the anatomy, and I was really interested in that. How the organ had become well. I know it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but its its, it's shape is determined by its function. Put it like that. No frills. Um, so I got my heart. Um, I, I was doing a AHRC Heart Science and Technology Fellowship at De Montfort University, and uh, was connected to Coventry Walsgrave. Um, hospital and we did some experiments on my heart so this is my heart and what we did was with the scanning process it was MRI 
Um, but one of the problems with MRI is that you have to remain very still. And <clears throat> with your heart, you can't stop it beating, obviously, and you want to. But what they did was they linked me all up with all sorts of electrical things. So they took the scans on a certain kind of on beat at the same time. So I had to stop, try and stop breathing or moving anyway. And then they'd take um, scans of my heart. They were using these in their own research um, too. So um, it was quite difficult to see actually because of all the kind of, because of the definition. Anyway, so I started to play around in the computer with a specialist in Montford and what you can do with this sort of technology, uh, scientific technology, is model in three dimensions and uh, you can, for example, uh, you could, if you wanted to, just isolate the fat in my body, for example, except that's not what we were focusing in on, but you can scan at a certain level which shows that, which um, Jimmy Bell has obviously been doing a lot of. Um, but for this, we were trying to just do my heart. And so you can see, forget the colour, it was just to, it was just to determine the different kinds of things that were going on. But you can see here that these lines are basically the gaps between each scan. I think it was something like two or three mil, I don't know, maybe four. And um, so that was running through, that's my neck, that's the front, and that's the back of my spine there. And this is just purely to show kind of the difference of... Um, editing away certain voxels, the volumetric pixels. So that's from the front, <laughs> and uh, that's from the side again, you can just see. So we could work in this three-dimensional thing, and why? one of the things that the scientists didn't want was noise. They didn't want extraneous stuff, they just wanted to isolate certain kinds of things that they wanted to be looking at to determine, not in my case, but in other people's cases, whether or not there was an illness or if there was a problem or whatever. Um, but I liked it. I liked all those bits hanging around and kind of giving another kind of digital understanding of my body and how I, not necessarily as a self-portrait, but just, um, you know, to kind of, a, a kind of a, that, that cutting edge, which I'm quite interested in. So that was it kind of in the end. And I made these rapid prototype models. So, um, in different kinds of materials. That's it in this white, they called it SLS, which is uh, laser sintering, mm. stereo laser sintering. So I think, you know, it's not a model of a, of a, of a heart, obviously. I would have done it in a different way had it been, and I've done something later, you'll see. But it was more to do with that interface of where science and my anatomy or somebody else's anatomy meets, and what happens as a result of re representing that in this way. So I, I've done quite a lot of work about, um, which relates to the brain. As I, um, I've spent, uh, spent time in a psychiatric hospital as an artist in residence in Edinburgh. And I was very interested in the relationship of how the brain works in terms of, um, you know, if we have a broken, simplify it lots, but if we have a broken leg, we can get it fixed. But if we have something wrong in the brain, it's obviously there's lots of research going on about that just now. But, when I did it in 1990, it was less, less kind of evident anyway. Um, so I've, I've, done, I've done a whole series of photographs of my family and our eyes, and this is my mum, me, and my niece, and I showed them, which is in this catalogue, if you want to, you're welcome to, I haven't got, got a few, if you're welcome to take them. But it was all about that idea of comparing generations and comparing, uh, she couldn't, my mum couldn't speak at the time, she had various strokes, 
but we were sort of communicating through her eye and being very conscious of that idea of heredity and whether or not we experienced our, our perception was similar and whether we were so tuned into one another we could understand each other or not. Quite often we didn't actually. <laughs> she was asking something completely different from, from what, uh, what I thought she was saying. But anyway, um, so I made a whole series of work, again, it's about that sequencing. This is an ex-student of mine, I do a bit of teaching at the Royal College. Um, I want to, I'm not interested in my work particularly, although the heart was me, but the only reason why I wanted to use uh, my heart was just simply because I didn't have to get all the protocol done about using somebody else's um, information, anatomical information. So I wouldn't say it was a self-portrait, it was just me using myself as a kind of guinea pig. And, um, but I, I'm quite interested in that relationship of you know, portraiture, but more sort of generic portraiture. This is Katie, who I asked whether she could get, she could um, make visible in her face uh, different emotions, which is actually quite tricky for somebody who's not an actress. Um, however, we managed to take about 20 um, scans of her face and block them in to this <coughs> block of glass and sub surface etch it in again like the clouds. And what I was really interested in the overlapping and the idea that somebody's not mood, but somebody's emotions can change very, very quickly within a very short period of time, and, and so it can, have, it can manifest itself obviously in facial um, changes, but also in terms of physiological ones within the body. So she started off in that left hand, but you can see quiet eyes closed, and then <clears throat> went through to laughing at the back, and that's kind of rage. I was trying to get her to look as if she was angry. Casting a face and then inside my mouth, up my nose and my ears. So again, what it's like to be inside somebody rather than looking at them very simply. And this piece is called Fool. And I, I, I exhibit it quite low and people tend to move into it. So I know it looks a bit like a mask, but it's also about that kind of thing when something flips from, from being a positive to a negative really. And that's inside that heart I showed you of the pig and then inside the human skull cast in metal. Again, sort of inside the skull and then I suppose that's where the meninges is really. So it's not the brain, it's actually just inside where the brain has lived as it were. And I was kind of interested in <clears throat> the formation of the actual kind of dendritic growth patterns as it were. So yeah, took, the, took a skull I was lent into the dark room and exposed it to light. Um, one of the things I was trying to think about whether or not you could, you could kind of metaphorically think about light inside the body, whether or not that would work. So this is just a process piece. I wouldn't, I do have exhibited it, but it's part of the way into making new work. I've watched quite a lot of neurosurgery in here, actually, in, in <clears throat> up in the Radcliffe and then in the old Radcliffe, which was down here. And uh, interested in the. Uh, way that the body, different areas of the brain can um, be shown to have different kinds of activities which, was, which are related to certain <clears throat> uh, the senses and those sorts of things, so the mapping of the brain basically. I watched the awake craniotomy as well which was very interesting about you know, when they bring people around when they're uh, having brain surgery and talk to them. So I made a piece in a, <clears throat> an old-fashioned uh, theatre, it was an operating theatre in the 1950s where 
people had <coughs> a lot of brain surgery. And so those are the kind of tools they use, which actually, you know, people use now, but it does seem a bit kind of like <coughs> something you'd find in your, in your toolbox at home. And so this piece was making a three-dimensional grid. So I was playing around with that idea of how you graph things up, uh, you know, how you measure things again. And what I did was made the three-dimensional graph and the actual data the same, as it were, because I, it was revealing my lack of ability to be absolutely accurate. So in a way, it was connecting to that idea of when I talk to people about brain surgery and other surgery, and this isn't a criticism about surgery, it's just an observation about humanity that some people have a better manual dexterity than other people. And I remember having a meal with a series of surgeons when I was here once and uh, asking if they had a, an aptitude test for dexterity, and uh, they just said, no, no, no. So I was just thinking, how interesting, you know, how interesting is that? That the very thing, which is almost at the level of Jewelry making is kind of is, is something that I suppose you, check, you judge yourself. Uh, so anyway, I'm just conscious of it as I make things, and I'm aware of the fact that even within my genre of, of people who make things, and there are people who are better at it than others. It doesn't mean to say that they're better artists, but they're just kind of more skillful. So um, using this rapid prototype technology, uh, which I use for the heart pieces, and they use in medical. Um, if somebody comes in and they have, for example, a car crash or a tumour or something like that, where they've got to do surgery on the brain, nowadays what they can do, I don't think they always do, but what they can do from the scans is determine the exact proportions of the tumour or the bit that's broken in the skull, and they can make it or they can work out what to cut out, and then they can make a platinum or whatever it is bit to put back in so they can really plan the, <clears throat> the surgery in a way that they were never able to do in the past, which would have resulted possibly in several uh, surgical interventions rather than just one big planned event. So this is what they do, they, they, you know, the red is obviously the tumour or something, yeah. And they can do all sorts of things. So I think you can see just underneath that eye, that's a kind of metal um, part that they've made for somebody's face. So I got my brain scanned um, up in Fimrib, up in Oxford, and um, it was really interesting observing, you know, looking at yourself. Not that I think it revealed a great deal, other than you know, looking at how I'm feeling, as it were, looking at the anatomy of my thoughts, which I found quite interesting. And I worked with various people on this project. At the time, um, Paul Matthews was up at Fimrib and uh, Morton Kringlebach, who's still in Oxford, and um, so we worked on this and made a piece isolating the five senses in the brain, and that's it, it's called SENSE. So the idea was from these functional MRI scans, which show the active areas in the brain when you're experiencing the five senses, for example, many other things, but that's what we were focusing in on. Um, I, we isolated them, model cleaned them up in 3D, took away the rest of the brain, <clears throat> you can see there, and these were the different uh, volumes and shapes of those senses. And from our point of view, I found this quite interesting, um, because in a way, they became so abstract that, you know, they could have been anything, and yet they were part of our vital sort of senses. Um, <clears throat> so that's it, really, to give you it as clearly as possible. And that's uh, 
if you want, you're welcome to take this. It's got some more information about that piece. That's the one that's in Tokyo at the moment with all the superstars, <laughs> historical superstars. So that's it. When I originally showed it, it was called Seeing and Hearing, and then I went on to finish the five senses. And, you know, they are, it is kind of, for me, quite exciting to think that these lumps are something very significant. You know, they are, that's, that's hearing, which in a way is the most obvious because it's the volume just inside where you find the ears. Um, that's it like that. And that's seeing, which is the visual cortex at the back. And like fat, I suppose, which I've been told now, which I find really interesting, is an organ. I didn't realize it was an organ. And I understand that the eyes are, as it were, part of the brain, considered to be part of the brain. You know, all these things which, uh, as just looking at something from a sort of point of view of an artist, you might not necessarily think of, I might think of fat in relationship to the, the curvature of a, you know, the, uh, the profile of a body, perhaps, or the weight of a body, or the, the way in which how a body actually kind of rests on the side, you know, to think of Bernini's kind of, uh, up in the Villa Borghese, all these incredible nudes where Daphne's being held back and somebody's got their, I can't remember which, which person it is, but somebody's trying to hold her back and got his hand on her thigh and it's kind of pressed in and you can see the curvature of her thigh. It feels real, it feels kind of fleshy. It doesn't feel particularly fat, but it feels like it's, it's made of, of flesh. So, you know, that's it there. And again, working with Morton, um, with, this is a piece made recently with him. He's written a book about pleasure. And um, this is a piece which comes from experiments that he's done about activating and deactivating kind of areas of the brain, of pathways in the brain to stop pain. So, you know, as a result of that, um, this is the piece that's been made. And it's actually just up in Scotland, I'm going up there tomorrow, in fact. It's going to be a show up there. And that was it shown, which Danny kind of came to, but it's in a, a show in the crypt in St Pancras um, recently. And I put it on a mirror so that you could kind of see underneath as well. So it's kind of like that idea of... You know, one you can't, you can't really have one without the other. You can't really have dark, dark without light. You can't have pleasure without pain in a way. You know, it's sort of all relative for me. So that's it close up. And I quite like the idea that the, the mirror in a way extended it. So you're getting that sense of something that's a reflection, a bit like a shadow in the lungs, but also it's kind of uh, giving you this other perspective onto something. So this is Oxford. Uh, I was very, I was really thrilled to be asked to be in such an amazing lineup of, of of other artists and such a prestigious venue um, to make peace for a biochemistry department. And started a conversation initially with Jonathan about um, the idea of uh, biochemistry. And um, I suppose I was coming from a solid state chemistry attitude, as it were, from the point of view of the Royal Institution. My influence is there. So I was thinking, could you make a piece of sculpture, I'm still thinking about this, out of all the elements in, in the body? And we were discussing this initially, which I still like to do it, but I think some of them are really quite reactive and dangerous to have in isolation. So looking at the element in that, and then in looking at the periodic table and thinking, could you do that? Um, so that was my starting point. Also thinking about looking at um, Jonathan's research and about the idea of uh, looking at things which are kind of brought in and out of life, like these uh, worms they use 
and how they're kind of frozen and then brought to life. The behaviour on a petri dish is observed and and and, and they're was it injected with fluorescent, is it or phosphorescent? Fluorescent. Fluorescent dyes and things to make it visible what's going on. And so I was thinking about this idea of when element when the elemental aspect and then the behavioural aspect. So if you keep that in mind when we look about what, how the work came about. I don't know if you've been there, but it's got this massive big atrium. That was always the space I was asked to make something for. So there's kind of parameters to what I could do, and one of them was that it would be suspended. Um, it was actually originally discussed as being a chandelier in the broadest sense. So, um, so anyway, yes, yeah, so I was looking at kind of images of heat and how things change in heat. And um, I was also thinking about this space, this atrium space, and thinking about the idea of observing animals. And in a space like that, which is basically air, what are the animals that we normally inhabit the air? And I thought it went through insects to wasps to moths to everything. And then I thought, well, birds are the appropriate scale, really, for that environment. So I got these two birds on eBay. One's a troupial, and the other one's a, <coughs> I think it's a French, a French seagull, a brown-headed brown French seagull, uh, scanned them, and then uh, you probably say now this is when she starts fiddling around with things because I did do a lot of stretching and pulling, but um, it was with a kind of genetic uh, or a kind of idea of transformation in mind. Um, so that's the same bird, in a, modelled in 3D, taken from those scans of the real birds, and uh, that's it in different states. And then what I did was join them together so that they, as it were, merge. So in a way, it's kind of a metaphor for the idea of sort of genetics or things going through different states depending on their heat. So in a way, I mean, they're there and they're, you know, they're, these ones were called merging and that's them in reality. Uh, and that one was opposite. So one was kind of in conflict and one was a bit more sort of being a bit more intimate with one another, I suppose. Um, because one of the things that... So, uh, John talked about on the on the petri dishes was just observing these worms coming to life, eating, consuming as much, behaving in a certain way, and having sex, and then dying. You know, and, and I was thinking, you know, I suppose that is actually the, the bottom line, isn't it? <laughs> so you know, um, so it's kind of that's embedded in the work. It's not about reproduction, but it's kind of in there. Um, so that's it there. And, and I kind of like the idea of going, ah, oh, a flock of birds, and then getting a bit closer in, and then, you know, maybe you can see another kind of level going on. And I suppose that would be my approach to this idea of the, uh, the obesity aspect, which really interests me in respect to, you know, we can all have our different attitudes towards fat in our bodies or other people's fat or whatever, you know, but um, it's sort of, in a way, I'm not, not making a false link between this, but it's, it, it, I think if I was to approach it, I think you know, actually isolating the fat would actually be my first sort of port of call, I think. Uh, that's us installing, and that's the atrium space, looking through Nikki Hurst's uh, piece. So she was the first person to start off the process of being involved from an art point of view there. That's the bottom, which is very blue. The colour of the birds went from blue at the bottom and blue at the top into this very intense heated area in the middle. And also, I was kind of playing around with the idea of the building itself, and as I'm not in the slightest bit religious, thinking about the idea of science and its equivalent to being not a new religion, but a, a, a belief system, something like that. 
So I was thinking about the idea of kind of way in which uh, your stained glass windows are used in churches in previous times. I'm now. So there you are. You see them. I think apparently it changes a lot depending on the weather and the intensity of the sunlight. And I quite like it against the solar cells and the grid of the building. So it's graph. You can measure it if you want. And that's it from the top. So they start off coming down. And that, also that idea that it's the first piece I've ever made where you can see it from below above on any level. So I was trying to think about if it was possible to make it interesting, you know. And they do move a bit, this is a long exposure image, but they do move a bit because of the fact that they're on wires, but also you know, any kind of heat and things I think affects them. And it's just like the idea that you see things through them. And the fact that this person, you know, looks the same scale. I mean, I know it's not really intended to be read like that, but so there you go. I think it's quarter to two. Should we stop? We've got time to stop yeah. and ask some questions. Uh, 